There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bears. This week on the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast, we're taking a look back at the last two and a half years, and we're going to have some highlights from our conversations with the incredible people that we've had as guests on this show. This isn't all the highlights. There, there just wasn't a way to include every special moment, every special conversation, but this was some of them. I really think you're going to enjoy this podcast. And you'll be able to go back and listen to these full episodes if you want to. It's winter time, and it's time to get the dogs out. We've been squirrel hunting and coon hunting even this week. And if you need dog stuff, you really need to support our guys at W Hunting Supply. But don't do it for them and don't do it for me. Do it for yourself because the selection they have, the customer service that they have down there is top-notch. These people are houndsmen people you're going to be talking to and dealing with or houndsmen or just order online buddy woodbury and his team they they they're masters at the garmin products they've got the new garmin alpha 200i which is garmin's new most recent dog tracking system check it out w hunting supply northwoods bear products man if you're baiting bears you got to be using this stuff spring is coming i know nobody's really thinking about baiting bears right now but you can and you should when you do, Northwoods Bear Products, check them out. CVA muzzleloaders. They make an incredible line of muzzleloaders. They have an incredible guarantee. If you're going to be muzzleloader hunting, check out CVA. I've been carrying one this year. Some of you have heard a few of my stories about carrying them. And uh, I've learned a lot about muzzleloaders this year. 
and I, I truly love carrying, love shooting my CVA Acura Mountain Rifle. Check out CVA and all that they have to offer. Check them out. Western Bear Foundation. These boys are doing some good stuff out west, speaking on behalf of bear hunters, bear lovers. That's us. We're bear lovers. Joe Condellis and his team at the Western Bear Foundation are doing a great job. They're a nonprofit hunting conservation organization, membership driven. Check out their organization, become a member. This first excerpt was taken from episode 21. The episode was called Old Mountain Hunter, Ori Lee Province. This conversation that I had with Ori was one of my favorites of all time. Since the recording of this podcast, Ori Lee has passed away, but this was a very unique conversation. Well, give me give me just a little like kind of a bigger glimpse of your life so born 1927 dad was a logger and you grew up just you stepped right into the family business and just logged right with him and uh, and then so you did that until when and and what other kind of occupations did you have well my dad died in 44 but uh, okay and uh, 41 while the world war ii broke out and uh my brothers, three of them went in service. Okay. And uh, I was the oldest one left at home. Okay. And I took care of my mother and uh, my nephew and uh, two sisters and a bro- brother. Hmm. Yep. So you were just just a few years too young to be drafted into the war. I was. I, 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 I was... Uh, well, my dad died at 16. Okay. And uh, when I become 18, the day I was 18, uh, the day after I was 18, my birthday come on Sunday that year. On Monday, I registered, and I went down and passed the examination. Eight days, July, I got my call for examination, went down and passed, and eight day of August, I got my call for service. And uh, a minister's out here. And I had a big tomato crop out, about 10 acres of tomatoes. And uh, me and the family did. We had to have something to live on. And uh, But anyway, while there's a minister out there. He said, this boy needs to take care of his mother and these children. Mm. And uh, so he wrote, uh, I got deferred until, oh, I, I see. until October the 15th. And... Uh, in other words, so the crop was over. Yeah. Then uh, I still got my one A classification, but the war was over at that time. Oh wow! So yeah. you just barely missed it. I just barely missed so it. So what year would that have been? Nineteen forty-four. Well, let's see. It'd been uh, about forty-seven. Well, I can't do the math. Either. Forty-seven, I believe, or something. Okay, like that. okay, forty. That would have been Seven, when World War Two was over. Forty-seven, right? Somewhere along there. Yeah. I'll be done. Forty-six. It's over in '46. The war was. Wow! So you yeah. would have gone if the war would have. Oh yeah, yeah. The boys that I went to school with, some of them, they was in there. They went to Germany. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be darn. Yep. Wow. So, <laughs> so what? It, so you logged up until 
how old were you? Well, you grew to you grew tomatoes. You did some farming. You had some cattle. Right. Like, well, I, I couldn't work in timber. That was the main line up till years and years later. Yeah. But anyway, I went and uh, me and my brother, we uh, that he never did have to go to war, and uh, so uh, but he, me and him went and cut timber and logged it. I yeah. hold it. I hold it on a wagon. Yeah. And uh, he he skidded it out, and I went and hauled it. Mm. And dumped it off at the mill. Mm. And that was I forgot now what year that was. Is uh, in the late forties anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Now the Great Depression. You were just a kid during oh, the yeah. Great. Re- now these these hills weren't really. I mean, they were affected by the Great Depression, but people were already poor. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't much you could do to somebody that was just living off the land, basically, when it comes to right. economic stress. Is that right? That's right, yeah. But we <laughs> lived off the land. Yeah. In 1936, that was a dry year, you know. Okay. And uh, we had a tomato crop, and we hauled water and set them out, and they got up, and just the blooming and everything— Turned off dry. We never got a tomato mm. in 1936. Wow. And uh, That was hard to take. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> huh. I remember that well, too. Yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, we we worked in a timber, and, uh, you know, the people back then, they, they finally got to where they brought out food stamps and things, but we never got any. My dad just wouldn't have nothing to do with that. Really? Just by yeah. principle? That's, that's he right. didn't need any but help? We we made it. We made it without it. We worked in Timber and made it. Yeah. What would have been a normal meal for your family back then when you were a kid? Oh, had plenty to eat. Yeah. Had plenty to eat. Yeah. We, we had anything that yeah. just about. We I guess you raised hogs and we canned vegetables. Hogs. Yeah. Had had a garden. I know you still have a garden, don't you? Well, yeah. Or, or yeah, 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 yeah. We we made it fine. Well, done good. Yeah, I had about thirty swarms of bees back during the war. While you couldn't get sugar, every food is all rationed. You mm. couldn't buy nothing. Everybody's out of sugar, and I had bees, and we got to you could get to. Permit to feed the bees, you know, because yeah. they used the, the honey some way or another in guns. Is that right? Powder, yeah. I don't know just what, but that's what I heard. Huh. Anyway. But, so you were selling honey? Well, I didn't sell it, but we eat it. Okay, you just had it. <laughs> yeah, we had it, and we got plenty of sugar to feed the bees, and so we didn't have to run out of sugar. A lot of people never had no sugar, flour, anything. They couldn't give just so much. Huh. You couldn't huh. buy you couldn't buy a truck tar or nothing. Really? Not a pair of shoes, hardly. Wow. Yeah. The next excerpt is my conversation with Roy Clark over in East Tennessee. This is episode sixty seven and it's called Appalachian Hound Hunting with Roy Clark Part One. Mr. Roy is a special guy. He's very dear to me. He's a master bear hound breeder and just a relic 
over there in the Appalachian Mountains. It's a pretty incredible, pretty incredible thing, and it's a unique, you know, there's a unique social structure that happens inside of, like, what I see coming from the outside in, looking at you guys. I mean, uh, just the relationships that that you guys have. And, I mean, if you go bear hunting with you, you see what it's all about. I mean, from daylight till dark, how many days a year are you guys together and you're working together to accomplish a goal and then now scott is is over here every day helping roy with the dogs and stuff now that's a whole nother side of the thing is just keeping dogs year round you know i mean that's a lot of work in and of itself but uh yeah it's a, it's a ton of work it's a ton yeah. of work yeah yeah um and, and you know that's something that that all of us at, at some point have, have taken our turn you know scott's taking jobs out on the road and it'd be me or Matthew or whoever. And, and that's the thing that, you know, we've always uh, took a lot of pride in was the dogs. Uh, yeah. And that's, you know, we're always talking about catching bears on the ground and Matthew and, and uh, um, one of the things that we're always looking out for is protecting those dogs because that's our lifeline. You know, yeah. there, there is no bear hunting for us without that pack of dogs. So yeah, uh, one of the most important things to us when we go into one of those bears is, is watching out for them and, and, doing doing our job to take care of them yeah yeah that's our main priority is the dogs first then whatever comes out of that you know we we handle it that way yeah yeah making sure the dogs are tied up before any bars are shot out of trees and you know right all that stuff so yeah if we ain't got them dogs we ain't catching no bird yeah that's right well mr roy why don't you tell me about when you well how your dad well just your first memories of bear hunting uh of, of well, going back in the mountains alvin david right those hunted with us or how old are you al 54 54 years ever since he's been big enough to go mm. and his daddy hunted with us and his daddy like my daddy like josh likes me his daddy did and yeah. uh and he hunted and we went to school together up here and and it's in there somewhere i've got a valentine's card in there that he sent me when we was about in the fourth grade i think and on that Valentine's card he sent me, he said, we bear hunters, ain't we, Roy? That was his dad. <laughs> Alvin David's dad. Yeah, his dad. He said, we bear hunters, aren't we, We bear hunters, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and what grade would you, how old would you have been? We was in the fourth grade, so ever, ever when that was. How long ago would that so be? About, there, about nine years old, bro. Yeah. yeah. Nine, something like that. So you stuck with, you went ahead and just stuck with that identity, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His daddy sort of left us coming and went some. He's back now. Maybe he'll stay. But that boy right there ain't never fired today, buddy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I yeah. love him. I'm getting of it, too. Yep. That that just shows you, Clay, what it, I mean. It means to us, you right. know. It, it's uh, it's beyond just uh, going out yeah. and having a big time hunting. Yeah, it's uh, beyond just uh, 
um, a group of guys here hanging out in, in Roy's house. You know, yeah. it, it's our life. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's uh, something we've all grown up doing all the way back through, and it's just uh, it's a bond. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It really is. Son, he won't leave you, buddy. He won't leave you out there. And we grabbed him on yesterday. Yeah. Leave you or the dogs. He'd be, he'd be the last one to come. He'd be the last one there helping you get the last dog up. Well, you know, I've hunted with you guys for three days. <laughs> of the last 68 years, this guy's been bear hunting. And the one time we had to fetch dogs after dark, he he went. I knew that. Yep. yep. Yeah, we spent a long nights in the in the truck together, and and uh, stayed all night and freezing cold and, and whatever. We we yeah. stay there with those dogs. Yeah. Episode eighty seven is for sure dear to my heart. I had some of my close friends in the room with me, and it was called "Beginner's Guide to Building Your Family on Purpose." We talked about building families, the transfer of family values into our children, really stuff that's super important to me. All this testing. So what we're talking about is building family culture. Building family culture. And all you guys, I respect every, all of you for the way that you have built your families. And I think nobody's doing everything right. I mean, yeah. that, that the word right is a tough one, but we're doing it intentionally. And I know all you guys well enough to know that you're very intentionally yeah. building family culture. And if, if you don't hear anything else on this podcast and you know, you're just listening to this and like, you just want to chew on something. My question to you is, are you being intentional with the way that you're building your family? And that word building could throw you off. And, and let me, let me, let me say this right here is that, uh, or I've got a couple of written statements here. Um, Let's see. Let's see. We we research and consult almost everything that we want to be proficient at. Mm-hmm. Do we not? Oh yeah. Like if you're gonna go on a big hunting trip, you're gonna learn about it. Yeah. If you want to get into cycling, like you go to cycling experts and see what they say. Right. Um, but with family stuff, a lot of times people are really isolated. Um, why? Why do you think that is? I think it can be perceived as weakness to have to rely on some uh, on advice or counsel from someone else mm-hmm. to build your own family. Yeah, you know when you when you see you know someone who's proficient at hunting and and you see you know I like to fly fish and so you know I I watch other guys. It's like, well, they've had a long history of this, and I want to glean from them. But when it comes to your own family, it's a it's a really a sensitive spot because you don't want to be seen as weak. Yeah, mm-hmm. or there's there's the other side of you 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 get isolated because you don't want to build like mom and dad or you yeah. don't want to follow their pattern yeah. and so it's I'm going to do it on my own I'm going to find okay. my own way and so it's it's almost a comparison of I don't want to do that so I'm going to do it my own way yeah mm-hmm. and that can that can make you isolated mm-hmm. yeah i think uh, and i think we as people a lot of times are insecure and and to open ourselves up for somebody else's input that's pretty vulnerable yeah and it you ha- it takes time of doing that a lot that you learn the value of it, yeah, yeah. and you're like, man, the more I open up my life to input, 
the better my life gets. The more I learn, the more my the better my marriage gets. And so I remember even early on um, in my marriage, and then same with early on when I first had kids, like maybe like the first time I kind of like went to some, went to maybe one of you guys or you know uh, people older than me that have been married longer, had kids longer. I remember it was almost like, you know, what are they going to say? And like, yeah, yeah. what if I'm doing everything wrong? And yeah, and, what if I'm invalidated yeah. by what they say? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then every time that I did go to people wiser than me, I always got two things. I always got number one, they related to me. I've never had an issue in my family or marriage. Somebody was like, you struggle with that? Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. You're, you're a terrible person. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have a marital struggle. Are you serious? Yeah. It's like everything. It's almost like my friends would like fill in the sentence. Oh yeah, and I bet you said this after you did that. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I bet you felt like this. Yeah, and uh, so that was one. It, it, that right there is comforting. Yeah, and it right. shows it you is. that it's safe. And then the second because you're looking at somebody that you you perceive has made it through that and you're yeah. like well they're okay yeah. and they had this problem mm-hmm. yeah and then the second thing is i've always had and i've always from that received an alternative perspective that i didn't have before yes and it's like every single time i learned that i can't do this on my own you know and i know we're i'm jumping right into all this but like that's one thing i learned with with building my family is like, there ain't no way I can do this on my own. So all and that, that's not weakness. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's, it's like this double edged sword. It's like, we're kind of insecure, but we kind of want to do it on our own. But at the same time, that's really hard. So we ended up just kind of feel We I think people either just feel like a failure or they just kind of build up. They kind of just say, well, this is how I am. And this is the way my family's going to be forever. Not really getting to experience what could be better. Yeah. I think it's a pretty American cultural thing to be really independent with your family. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, uh, you know, cultures cultures are built based upon national history. Yep. I mean, and like, you think about the people that like settled in this region or heck, every region of this country, unless they're, unless they're Native Americans, they came here and there was like this pioneer spirit that was on people to like bust through the wilderness and make it on their own. People had to be Mm self-sufficient. And like here in the Ozarks, that is a trait that is honored, self-sufficiency. I mean, like at the Newcomb Farm, we hat tip to the idea of self-sufficiency big time. That's okay. But that cannot be the definer of every part of your life or Mm -hmm. you're a fool, Uh you know? So like, yeah, we, we like to hunt some some of our own food, butcher our own animals, grow some stuff, train our, you know. But when it comes to things that I am not an expert on, that I'm incapable, well, anybody could can have insight into their family and make decisions on their own. We're not we're not suggesting that somebody is incapable of making decisions on their own. No. But what I'm saying is best practice inside of life is for people to be connected inside of some network of people that they trust. Mm-hmm. You know, Episode 91 is one that I'll never forget. It was a conversation that I had with Jonathan Wilkins. The title of the podcast was The History of Racism in African-American Hunting. This is a unique conversation. 
Man, you know, there's what you just said about African-Americans being so connected rurally for such a long time has almost been like erased from the culture in a lot of, in a lot of ways. I heard a stat today that there's 300,000 African-Americans that hunt in the U.S. today. 300,000. Of like 11 million hunters. So less than less than one in 10. Does that stat ring with you? I mean, I, I heard be- that from a 2017. I believe that if you took that nationally. Now, I'd, I'd say the, I would almost, ha- I would hazard to guess that the bulk of black hunters are in the South. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I bet if you, you know, if you look at the, the centers of African-American life in this country, uh, they're going to be mostly in coastal or northern cities. You know, that, and these, po- these are population remnants of the Great Migration. Right. You know, people leaving uh, structural racism and, and, you know, physical violence in the South – uh, which and they moved to the and they to moved the cities. To, to the industrial cities yeah. of the north because you know you you also had a you had an economic shift out of agriculture into production and those production centers were in the north so you had these waves of people moving to you know uh, St Louis like my my dad's family was originally from Keough Arkansas really you know, that's about thirty miles away from here but you know I'm from St Louis. Uh, Indian, Indianapolis, Detroit, uh, Minneapolis, Baltimore. Mm-hmm. You know, these are pl- these were big industrial Boston, b- big industrial cities that black people moved up to. Uh, yeah, and it, and it shows you kind of how short our collective memory is. Yes, because you know, just colloquially, you start to think that you know that. I don't know that maybe there's something inherent in blackness that uh, that is disassociative with the natural world. Right. And if you just look back a little bit further, or you just you drive around like the state that we live in, like you know you live in a part of the state where there's not very many African Americans. If right. you drove over to the opposite side of the state, That's right. you would see black people everywhere. You would see uh, whole towns. I mean, now small. You'd see small towns, but like Cotton Plant, which is about ten miles from Brinkley, like yeah, is probably almost entirely African American. And that's all remnant of yeah. That's agricultural slavery. populations where people lived, um, and you know, and it's like you, probably most people wouldn't think of black farmers, but across the Delta, across the South, there are right. black farmers. There. are you know, multi-generational black yeah. farmers. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know, man. Well, that's, the, the, that's a good place to put a button The in rich, what I was shocked at, Jonathan, inside of this book, in the first chapter, it's like, I mean, just is, if, if somebody could just even just read the first chapter of this book, the rich history of hunting that was built upon kind of this plantation model if I, I don't know another way to say yeah, it for sure but like uh the black people were in charge of there was a lot of hound hunting a lot mm-hmm. of dog hunting they were running deer they were running rabbits they were 
Well, and it, it, so the, the a lot of the black guys were the hound handlers, and a yeah. lot of them were master houndsmen. Fast, I mean, that blows my mind. The next section is from episode 73, titled How Bear Hunters and Hillbillies Define the State. It was a conversation with Dr. Brooks Blevins. He's a historian. He's a serial book writer. He's got, he's written so many books about history in the Ozarks. And that conversation, I just loved it to the core. You're going to enjoy this segment. Just this being their nat- natural historic range. I mean, it's just this incredible animal. And, and with that incredible animal comes all this incredible history. So there's been this like resurgence the idea of the Ozarks being a, a place to hunt bear. And, and a lot of that happened in, it, it's really happened in the last 20 years as the bear populations have increased in the Ozarks. Right. And so the hunting regulations have liberalized in order to, you know, manage bear populations. So all of a sudden guys are able to hunt bears in a, in a, in a more, in a fashion where they can actually harvest them and kind of liberalize, liberalize the seasons a little bit. And so, all of a sudden, those arcs are on the national radar for bears. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that's cool. Yeah, it's and you're right. I, I I'll admit I I didn't know that uh, they were on the the national bear radar until yeah. until today. But uh, but yeah, you know one of the things I've noticed through the years is uh, you know regions sort of come into vogue and then they slip back into the background, they come back and it's kind of a cyclical thing. And, you know, if you go back to the sixties and seventies, the Ozarks and the the 1960s and seventies, the Ozarks were really hot. You had Mm. the Beverly Hillbillies and you had all these folk festivals going on around the region. And there was a lot of stuff. Uh, The Ozark mountain daredevils, you know, one of my, my favorite bands from the seventies and a lot of stuff. And then the region sort of disappeared and then it, and then, and I think you're exactly right. In the just in the last uh, decade, it's it's really made a comeback uh, on on TV and the movie Winter's Bone, uh, a terrific novel and and movie that came out a few years ago, set set in the sort of meth cooking uh, mm-hmm. element of, of the Ozarks, and and uh, and so I think uh, you know this this resurgence of bear hunting and interest in in bear hunting is is perfect and uh and at least as far as i'm concerned there's no better headquarters than than the ozarks for that from the history yeah. the from the history that i know about that's uh, yeah. that's a pretty perfect place for it well the the first book that i read of yours i've got it right here in my hand is uh it's t- well it's titled arkansas and there's two two ways to spell it on the title arkansas the historical way that ends with an S right. and then Arkansas spelled with a W at the end. The way we all say it. That's right. Arkansas. That's yeah. right. Yeah. We yeah. don't say Arkansas. We say yeah. Arkansas with a so, W. Yeah. And yeah. then the tagline, and this is what, man, you had me at this, which it may have been, the, I may be the only person that ever read this book. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> how bear hunters, hillbillies, and good old boys defined the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, I can see how that that subtitle would get you. Yeah, oh, it, 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 it hooked me hard, man. Yeah. It hooked me hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that's really what I want to talk about is yeah. like uh, is how you know I'm interested in how sp- me specifically how hunting culture influences a region. Yeah, you know because I think what's happening inside of modern hunting is we're trying to redefine our relevance. 
You know, I mean, with a lot of things that happen, urbanization, people being disconnected from the land, disconnected from where they came from, um, anti-hunting sentiment, Mm -hmm. people just not understanding the culture. People are people are disconnected. So as hunters, it's kind of like we're we're trying to say we know we're relevant. We know what we're doing is beneficial for wildlife, beneficial for economies, beneficial for non-game animals that we're not hunting because of funding for wildlife that we're trying to protect. So all these amazing benefits that come from modern hunting. But we're trying to like carve out our relevance in a modern time. And so when I look at a statement like that, how bear hunters, hillbillies, and good old boys defined a state – like I think really what I'm trying to do is I'm 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 curious about how other parts of my life and I told you right before we started this that I'm a seventh generation Arkansan. My kids are eighth generation. Uh you know, we we've really been hunters all the way through. Yeah. And and I'm I'm trying to figure out where hunting has influenced my life in maybe ways that I don't even understand. You know? Right. Uh right. And uh Yeah, I think uh yeah, I think there's a lot to that. As you were talking, I, I was thinking about uh, a, a lot of things that have happened just in the 21st century, the, these sort of revivals. And in a way, I think what you're talking about is sort of a hunting revival yeah. in, in a sense. And yeah. I think about these, uh, you know, this this <clears throat> fad for what we call it axe throwing or whatever this thing is. And, and, and a lot of these... Uh, and and I think there's there well I know there's here in the you know twenty years into the twenty first century there there's a renewed interest in going back to the land amongst uh, a, yeah. you know a younger generation again and I think a lot of that is a reaction to the fact that our society is so urbanized and it's modernized and it's it's gotten farther away from uh, that, you know, that past that many of us probably romanticized to a certain degree that, yeah. that sort of, that sort of hunting, uh, and, and farming close to the land past that people are trying to reconnect with. And sometimes yeah. it's people who've, who've been away from the land for a generation or two and they feel some sort of, I don't, I don't want some sort of emptiness or some sort of, yeah. vacuum that that needs to be filled by by making contact with the land whether that's you know growing their own food or right. killing their own food or 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 whatever that is so i i, th- I think it's all part of a what I, I call it uh part of the primitivist spirit and okay. i don't want to get you know too too far into uh lengthy words here but but i I, I, do I, I think i think primitivism oh, is a i think it's a, it's a very strong uh force in in human society especially in civilized human society that extends well beyond this kind of stuff it's in religion and politics and all that kind of stuff mm. it's it's a desire to reconnect with your origins in a mm. very real uh you know just a, a very hands in the dirt sort of sort of way and i and i think this is is that this, a is that a feature of a really modern prosperous society do you, you I, see yeah, what I'm I saying think it, i think it is yeah. i mean like yeah. the people back in the 1800s that were 
farming and bear hunting, like you said, we romanticize that so much. They yeah. sure as heck weren't trying to reconnect with their past. They're trying to get yeah. away from it. They, Is that's that right? A, that's exactly right. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's the insight right there. It's this next excerpt is from a fellow Arkansan by the name of Keith Sutton. The episode was 94, and it's called A Gunfight, A World Record Ray, and Mauled by a Bison. I didn't know Keith real well when I sat down to talk with him, but as he spoke, I realized what a unique man I was sitting with, and he had some incredible stories of adventure, and this just stood out to me as a really unique conversation when he talked about catching a world record ray in the Amazon River. You know, people always asked about Brazil. Uh, Weren't you scared being in those remote places? I was never scared. It was totally the opposite, really. Mm. Uh, I'm scared going downtown Little Rock at night, but I'm not scared being on the Amazon 600 miles from nearest town because there's nobody there. Yeah, uh, that's what made it exciting. You're in a place few people visit, few people are there, few people live there, and so you have all these amazing opportunities, especially fishing wise, uh, that are just incredible. Mm. And uh, I, w- I was never, I never felt in danger. I mean, mm. we saw things that could have been dangerous. We saw fifteen foot anacondas and Mm. uh, things like that but i I never felt like we were ever in any danger down there i loved going to brazil the people down there are really wonderful and there's nowhere in the world got better fishing i mean is that right it's incredible peacock bass at the time nobody was really promoting the catfishing down there and i didn't know my first trip down there that there were huge catfish really and when I found out, it's like, why am I fishing for peacock bass when I can catch a <laughs> Give 600 me some chicken pound? liver and a yeah, treble hook. exactly. <laughs> so um, my second trip, my, on my first trip, uh, something happened that was kind of incredible. I was in the boat with a, a, a friend from Brazil, and we saw this massive fish that was probably seven or eight feet across, round as a circle, that swam under the boat. And I'm like, what the heck was that? And he called it a haya. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but it means ray. Oh. But it was seven or feet, seven or eight feet around. And it, I didn't in think they water. had those in freshwater. Were you, you weren't close had, to the ocean? No, nowhere close. Freshwater we were 3,000 miles from the ocean. Oh, wow. And so uh, when I got back, I started trying to find out what could that be. Nobody knew. There was no information about a fish like that. So I decided, I know where I saw it. I'm going to go back and try to catch it. So my <laughs> second trip, I, I went Send an Arkansas back. boy named Catfish down there to do a man's job. <laughs> I went to the same place, <laughs> my second trip, and I caught that fish. No way. And it's called a discus ray. It had not been seen or described since the early 1800s. And it turns out there there's more of them than people really knew. Uh, anybody How did you catch who, it? Well, uh, I figured it's a ray. I'd caught a lot of big rays in okay, saltwater. Okay, so you water. knew I knew something about catching about rays. It. I'd caught uh, southern stingrays that were seven or eight feet across. 
and they lay on the bottom and eat dead stuff. So I put a dead fish on the hook, threw it out on the bottom where I'd seen this fish before. And within 15 minutes, I had it on. No way. Line. Why didn't uh, something else eat? I mean, like if those well, fish or rivers are so full of fish, I mean, it's they are pretty and amazing. It's difficult fishing with those kind of baits, but I was just determined, you know, I was going to try to hit the right spot and, just fortunately, I caught it, and it was like the most incredible fish I've ever seen. When wow. I got back, I decided, well, it needs to be a world record. I wanted to uh, enter it in the record book, and you have to have the fish identified by an expert. Uh, I couldn't find an expert knew what it was. I had all these great photos of this fish. Mm. None of the ray experts had ever heard of it. Finally, I found a guy in Germany who's a ray expert, and he said, this fish is painted in a book from the very early 1800s it's the same fish i'm i have no doubt in this book it was called a spine-tailed leposaurus and the wow. picture was identical it had a short tail covered with spikes no like way. a dinosaur you got to show me this picture uh, yeah for sure it's uh it was an incredible fish and uh it's still the world record that particular fish was about 6 feet across weighed almost 200 pounds uh and i caught several more <laughs> while i was down there really uh, How, I, I can't even imagine reeling in a fish like that like it was it, did they fight oh yeah or is it like dragging yeah. dead well weight? it's kind of like dragging a barn door you know it's uh it's like most rays you know a lot of people who hook a ray uh here in saltwater just want to cut the line because it's so difficult to actually land one you know, mm. they're huge and they're flat and they suck up on the bottom and don't want to come up. Uh, this one was on the bottom in eight feet of water. I had to sit there and strum my fishing line to make him mad enough to get off the bottom. And so what do you mean? Like, like vibrate the fishing yeah, line? Yeah, you kind of vibrate your really? line like a guitar string and it aggravates them and they'll eventually come up. I'll be darned. And, Is uh, that a ray trick or just a, that's a ray trick. fishing trick? That's a ray trick okay. that I learned uh, in Virginia with some anglers out there. Uh, but when he came up, then I knew I had him. And mm. uh, it, it was an did incredible they, they fish. Him? No, they don't eat them at all. I, I wanted to release this fish alive, but by the time we could get it uh, weighed, I, I took a certified scale with me. By the time we could get to the boat, uh, it had expired, so we yeah. couldn't release it. Yeah. And I asked, you know, can we? Can you eat it? And they're like, no, we're not going to eat that. Mm. Uh, mm. The piranhas ate it, which was pretty incredible, too. All the wow. anglers on the boat came and watched, and we cut it up and fed it to the piranhas. Wow. And uh, that was pretty incredible. In That's an incredible story. What's the, yeah. Say the name of that fish again. Well, now or, or they Ray, call excuse them me. discus ray is the discus name uh, and before there had been some small ones in the record book I think 11 pounds something like that oh prior to you catching yes, this one yes but it was they were small fish and the first Nobody one you caught was got, 200 pounds yeah almost 200 pounds uh, it was uh, the whole story was really incredible because it was such a rarity to you know to be able to find something Nobody knew anything about. I was just dumbfounded when I got back, and I'm talking to all these. What ray year would experts. that have been? Uh, I can't remember for sure, but I believe it was 2001. Maybe. I mean, that's like 
it's it, we're not talking about like the 1960s or something. No, no, you know? no. I mean, so that's amazing to me yeah. that in 2001 they you were. You can still go to Brazil. My last trip, I went to the Xingu River in Brazil, which is in a different area, and uh, we actually caught some catfish there that had never been described by science at all. Wow. Uh, I came back with uh, photos of fish that I needed to get identified, and I found an expert in Massachusetts at uh, Cambridge University who spent his lifetime down there studying fish. And uh, he found out I was going down there. He learned about this big ray, and he said, if you go to Brazil and you could photograph fish, send, send me the pictures. I'd like to see what you're catching. And it turned out some of the fish we caught had never been described by science. The local people knew about them, yeah. but science didn't know about mm. them. They didn't have a name. Uh, a lot of them were unusual armored catfish. Mm. So, I mean, to imagine you can go out in this day and age and catch something science yeah. doesn't know about. To me, that's, that's, that's incredible. incredible. It's, it you know, fun. if you think about it, though, we live in such a unique time as humans because 75, 80, 100 years ago, that would have been kind of normal maybe. Sure. I mean, yeah. like, so we, 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 we think. Anyway. Yeah, we, well, normal in the sense of so much had yet to be discovered. Right. But in the last 100 years, it's like all of a sudden we're sitting in your living room in Arkansas and we've got the world at our fingertips well, you know, and we feel like everything's been discovered. Yeah, and, and it hasn't. And to me, that was always one of my things I loved doing the most was finding what's out there. Here in Arkansas, even, I found things over the years nobody knew was here in Arkansas. Salamanders and birds mm. and and uh, snakes, even, that nobody knew were here. Like what? Uh, they're kind of obscure animals, but, uh, there was a, a type of worm snake I found, uh, when I was, that, uh, they didn't know it was here. Nobody knew it was here. Mm. Uh, and back then I, I would publish those findings in scientific journals. So people would know, uh, there was a salamander called a mole salamander. Nobody knew we had those here. Mm. Uh, even today, uh, if you dig and read on the internet every year there's literally hundreds of animals being discovered nobody knew about it at all mm. i just did an article recently about just new fish that have been discovered every year like worldwide yes okay and every year there's several hundred new species being described wow so we're learning more and more a lot of it has to do with dna and genetics right. we're finding out fish that we thought were all one type of fish are really several species i see but sometimes it's something brand new we didn't know about and yeah to me, those adventures when I was able to find something nobody knew about, that's the coolest thing in wow. the world. That really you know, is. It's really fun. That really is. This next excerpt is from episode 92 when I talked to Steve Ranella and Giannis Putellis. There's some guys I look up to, and I think you'll enjoy this little snippet of the conversation. Um, I just had a few just quick, I'm going to run through these questions and then we'll be done. Um, so these are unanswered questions that people have about um, celebrities 
I'm 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 uh I'm a little leery to use the word celebrity because we don't yeah, really do we want count to say as that. that? Uh, man, I I'm not sure, but uh no, I I asked a few people and they were like they were joking, but they were serious. Question number one, and you could just give a short answer. Uh, are you nice to your wife? Uh, we'll start with Giannis. Extremely, he is. Um, it just depends for me, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, my wife's mad at me a lot. I'm mad at my wife a lot. We've been together 12 years, man. We got three little kids in the house. I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that. Right? You're not gonna paint a su- no. super rosy picture. It's like here. a bottomless. Uh, but level. your intentions. There's like, a, yeah. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of love and respect, and I would never do anything to disrespect my wife. Yeah. But it's just like anybody knows, man. Like, get a kids. It, I, yeah. You spend yeah. a lot of time on each other's nerves and yeah, yeah. just I'm with whatever. You. Yeah, it's just so, like a, so it's people. Just a, it's just so a, like, I don't. I, I don't like to act like it's not. It's just a reality, man. Yeah, but um, but yeah, it's all it's all based on respect and love. But God, it just gets stressful sometimes. Okay, what I like to make sure that I do, and again, I, I answered that question, you know, quickly, so you could get through these questions quickly. But yeah. now, since we're getting into them, <laughs> um. I try to at least when I am to then uh, be humble and apologize. There you go, and and you know, okay, and, and, and know that. Hey, Giannis speaks very highly of you behind your back hmm. about your <laughs> being a father and husband. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I do a little checking around. Um, you did some reference checking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, number two. Uh, what do your wives think about all this? Like just you guys like, like traveling, hunting, you know. There was, just short for just, me, real quick. There was never a not. There was never like it wasn't like a thing that got introduced, right? Because it was she, just always that way. Yeah, it was yeah. always that way. So I never had to go through a hurdle of of being like, "Hey, I have a new life." Because you now. didn't you didn't start and then it. Okay, no. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it very much was introduced. We've been married now 17 years. And, uh, so halfway through this thing kind of started and I started traveling a whole bunch more. Although we had always been apart, uh, uh, some because I was a hunting guide and would be gone for most of the fall. And she spent a lot of time in the field all summer. So she would be sometimes gone in a different state for three months. Um, but, uh, yeah, she's very supportive of whatever I do. And, uh, it's also, you know, uh, you know, a, a source of income, and it's nice to be able to do something you love to do, you know, to, to you know, for your income. So, yeah, can't say no to that. Okay, so Meteor was built on this authenticity inside of a context in the hunting world that was had lost a lot of authenticity, and so the question is, and that's and that's what would characterize you, Steve. And Giannis, too, and just kind of the brand, I, f- I feel like, is, is authenticity. And so how do you maintain that authenticity in the midst of massive growth when we know, like, like everybody knows that consumes hunting media that it has to be paid for? I mean, so what, what stole authenticity? No, they don't know that. You don't think so? Well, I mean, what stole authenticity? That really irritates people. Well, is... Is that guys? Especially were, when you're in the business of, of providing like basically like free media, like right? Uh, podcasts are free, right? I mean, there's an advertising component, but you're, you're like yeah. producing like free media. Um, Netflix, you know, it's not free, but it's a very low subscriber fee. It's an inf- It's a bottomless pit of content. 
Right. Right. Like, you know, I, I don't, it's not transactional per episode. However, right. people are very irritated when confronted with the idea that you need to finance this oper the operation. Right, right. That you need to finance your ability to make free content. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But people, no, it's not understood. I don't think it's widely understood. Well, so how do you, how do you maintain, because I mean, what I was saying was that you've, you've done a good job of uh, maintaining that authenticity in, in, inside of the context. So how do you keep doing that? Hey, let me, let me, let me, uh, I've got, I digress to, uh, well, uh, well, but I go ahead. But I, but the, I think the questions you kind of, the, the questions like there, but it's eluding you. Okay. Well, that's the question. How do you, how do you build a business like you, like you have and maintain the authenticity that got you here? I mean, I think it's the, because of what, because, because it'd be like, let's say you make shoes. Okay. And you make good shoes. And then pretty soon you have a big company that makes shoes. People aren't going to say to you, um, how do you continue to make shoes? Be like, well, that's what we do. Well, so I'm saying like what got, what, what, what got, you know, what, what created the situation anyways, is it's just still what's created. It's just now. like making a thing that was making a thing that felt real and that you could feel passionate yeah, yeah. about. If you stop doing that, You've stopped making shoes. Do you see that? Happening you know what I'm saying? Like, other like people. I see what you're saying. Like, what is it? If you're not doing that anymore, then you're not doing the thing that that right that people wanted anyway. But do you not see that? That's what happens to companies, though. Is they 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 lose that when they get big, I, and that's certainly not what I'm saying. I'm I, seeing. well, they might, but I don't know how you keep. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't really. Okay. I can't really well, I think in that. our context, though, in the hunting industry, I think maybe what you're getting at is that because of the way that you have to pay to make this stuff keep working, right? You have partnerships and advertisers, and you have to make them happy. Right. And so at some point, you come up to a thing where there's a huge check that's associated with maybe a product or a brand that you don't align with. But if you need that check real bad, you have to go that route, right? And then you right, end up yeah, endorsing right. maybe a product or a brand right. that you necessarily don't align with, and people see that you are being inauthentic, and then it could cost you your authenticity. Right. Oh, um, yeah, I see what you're saying. Not like in the material you make, but well, in a holistic, a holistic place, and not just that, but yes, that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking to that, I think we've just always stood our ground and when that yeah. stuff comes around i mean there's there's just boxes and boxes of gear that comes across through the doors of media and across our desks where we just look at it and it's like hey it might be good but it's just not us you know and yeah. we, we know we just pass on it and we've you know speaking to steve's loyalty i mean first light was the first clothing brand that he got in with and been with them for 10 years now you know yeah. yeah the first two people to get behind our show were first light and vortex yeah and we to this day yeah they're still there yeah but i think so I, either, like, and, and, see, I, and i, and I don't I, have like in and, and, and um to endorse talk about recommend vortex products is not painful it's authentic because you've been using them for that long. And I have like an, yeah, there's a product connection 
But I have an emotional connection there. Yeah. That's yeah. not all, you know, I don't want to tell you that that's something that's like that, that emotional aspect is always present, but there's parts of it that I'm, I'm like quite proud of that fact. Yeah. I don't view it. I don't view that I'm able to have like a long-term relationship and a, you know, a sponsorship arrangement, um, a reciprocal relationship with Vortex. I don't look at that as being like, oh, it's just a thing I had to do. I'm like proud of that. Yeah. And see what I'm, what i what I see is that I, I think there's an internal component inside of uh, inside of somebody that's got to be pretty strong to maintain that kind of authenticity in the midst of success. So I mean, I guess and maybe it's so deep inside of you guys that you don't you don't even no see no it. that's not true, man. You it's, don't think so? I don't want to. I don't want to like act like I don't understand your question. Uh, no, we con- we have conversations all the time. About about what? What do you mean? We have what we do is deliberate. Yeah, it's not accidental. Okay, we have conversations every day about what, not like how to what, not turning left or turning right, but it's like conversations every day about like. Getting it right. Yeah. Like getting it right. Detail. We did a hunt last year with these guys at this place called Crooked Sky Outfitters in Wyoming. Great dudes. Mm -hmm. Like great, great dudes. Love those guys. Um, And I was having a conversation with the son, Landon uh, Peterson. And he was observing one day to me. He was like talking about how he try he like observes he's I would regard him like like a successful person, right? Like does things intentionally. And he was observing, he was telling me how he observes successful people. And he said a thing that he's noticed is that they pay attention to all the details. They pay attention to the details at their home. They pay attention to the details of how they raise their children. They pay attention to the details of what they do at work. They pay attention to the details of their vehicle. They, like, pay attention to the details. Always. Yeah. You can make a – there can be a – you can have a facade of carelessness or a facade of shooting from the hip. But I think that most people who are able to do something for a long time are very cognizant of details. And I think that we sit around arguing about that people will be like, I cannot believe these people are arguing about something that seems so mundane. Right. It seems so silly. But we, like, as an organization, like, we don't think it's silly. Yeah. So when I say it's deliberate, there's, like, there's, like, I'm, like, aware of what we do. Yeah. And how we do it. Not to say that, you know, you don't make all kinds of screw-ups, but, you know, we discuss things. I like it. I like I like At great saying. length, things that would be silly. Yeah. When we're making our show, we argue over like like seconds of things. I mean really like seconds. You know, considerable back and forth. Lastly, how could we talk about the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast without including Ted Nugent's performance of Fred Bear? A highlight for sure. We spent that last October together for about 
a week. And then the next spring he died in 88. And I went out to do my chores one day and we were all shattered at his death. It was just, it was just unbelievable because he made such an imprint on everybody. He's a great, great man. Did you ever meet him? No. Oh, well, you're going to meet him right now. And so I went out to do my chores. I had my dog biscuits, and my Irish setters, and I went, porch. I went and I grabbed the guitar, and I just, I didn't know, I had no idea. I wasn't thinking of Fred. I just w sat down, and I went. Now, I always play killer licks when I pick up the guitar, but I never played one like this before. There I was, back in the wild again And I felt right at home, where I belong And I had that feeling, coming over me again Just like it happened, so many times before So many times Spirit of the woods, he's like an old good friend. Makes me feel warm and good inside. I know his name, it's good to see him again. Cause in the wind, he's still alive. Talking about Fred Bear, walk with me down the trails again take me back take me back where i belong fred bear i'm glad to have you at my side my friend and i will join you on the big hunt before too long It was kind of dark, another misty dusk. And it came from a tangle down below. And I tried, I tried to remember everything he taught me so well. I had to decide which way to go. Was I alone? Or in a hunter's dream The moment of truth Is here and now I felt his touch I felt his guiding hand And the buck was mine Forevermore Because of Fred Bear I still walk Down those trails again he takes me back, takes me back where I belong. Yeah, Fred, Fred Bear, I'm glad to have you at my side, my friend. And I will join you on the big hunt before too long.
And we're not alone when we're in the great outdoors. We got his spirit, we got his soul. And he guides my steps, guides my arrows home. The restless spirit forever roams. And it roams with Fred Bear when I walk down those trails again. He takes me back, takes me back where I belong. Fred Bear, I'm glad to have you at my side, my friend. And I will join you on the big hunt before too long. Cause in the wind, He's still alive In the wind He's still alive In the wind I can hear I hear Fred Bear I hear you, Fred. Hey, Fred, let's go hunting, buddy. Come on. You go up that ridge. I'll go down to the swamp, baby. We'll get that buck. I hope you've enjoyed these highlights from the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast over the last couple of years. These were all special moments that were memorable to me, and they most certainly were not all the special moments. Holy cow. Every single episode, every single guest had extreme value to bring to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for your support of Bear Hunting Magazine and our podcast and what we're doing. I hope you have a great Christmas. I hope you stay safe. I hope you have a great new year. You'll hear from us again, but it might be in a condensed version in the next podcast. Merry Christmas, boys and girls. Have a good one. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.